So let's just jump in. I was reading in preparation for this sermon and it came across a story about Evil Knievel. And, I, and so I started reading that, kind of got sidetracked a little bit by Evil Knievel. And his story is pretty amazing. He lived a really hard life. Uh, Guinness Book of World Records says that the stuntman Evil Knievel broke, he had 433 bone fractures in his lifetime, 433 bone fractures. You're, you'll see some of those injuries behind me here in just a second. I mean, by all accounts, the guy lived a really hard life, Evil Knievel. And also, by all accounts, he lived a really hard life off the bike. Uh, some say he was an alcoholic, a bit of a womanizer. He was divorced, married a girlfriend, spent time in jail because of assault with a baseball bat, had a restraining order against him at one point. But according to legend, late in his life, he was sitting on this beach in California and he has this vision, this clear voice that he hears that says, evil, I've saved you more times than you know, and now I need you to come to me through my son, Jesus Christ. Okay, that's what he says he heard. I can't judge the authenticity of, of what he heard or what he said, but I know that he was baptized, he gave his life to Jesus, and because of that, hundreds of others were baptized and saved because of what they saw in evil can evil. Evil can evil, that guy, or the other, the guy with two halves, that guy. Okay. Here's my question about Evil Knievel. I don't want to digress too much with him, but here's my question about him as I was reading through this article. Would Evil have fit in at Highland? Would he have fit in here? I mean, we don't have a lot of daredevils at Highland. We have a lot of dentists like that. <laughs> I guess cavities can be risky, I, you know? Uh, you know, we, we've got a lot of like accountants and stay at home parents and we've got an elder who rides a motorcycle occasionally, but I haven't seen him in a leather onesie yet. And I'm, I'm hoping he'll break that out. You know, we, we don't have a lot of daredevils. Would he have, would he have fit in here? You know, let me ask it this way. Would evil have fit into our mold? And I kind of shudder to say that out loud because I hope we don't have a mold here at Highland. I hope the only mold here at Highland is the mold of what Christ is making us into as a body, the work that Christ is doing in our lives. But there's some that might say it's easier to fit in here if you can check certain boxes off, fit in here, or really at any church, that if you've got certain things going on in your life, it's a little bit easier to fit in. I hope that's not the case here, but you might think about it. So would evil have, have fit in here at Highland? I was actually thinking that question about Paul when I was reading through Acts 9 when I stumbled upon the story of evil because somebody referenced him in relation to Paul and his Ananias Road experience. So I started reading that story. But I was actually thinking it about Paul or Saul as he's known before he's known as Paul. And I was reading through this story in Acts 9 that we heard just a minute ago and you've read a million times. It's about Saul as he's traveling along the Damascus road, presumably on a donkey. He sees this bright light and hears the voice of Jesus as he's knocked to the ground from the donkey. And the voice says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And then Ananias, this brother, comes to him and lays hands on Saul and commissions him for this new work for the Lord. And then he goes to the church in Jerusalem and Barnabas vouches for Saul in front of this church. I've read that so many times. But this time, 
I was thinking through this story in light of the sermon series that we're currently in that we're calling Warmer. What we're doing in this story is paying attention to the book of Acts, to each story in the book of Acts, about what those stories have to teach us about being a church that's warm and hospitable and welcoming. And I just couldn't help but wonder, would Saul have fit in here at Highland? Would he have fit our mold? I mean, think about it. He's single, so he doesn't have kids, so he doesn't do the whole soccer practice thing or Friday night football thing. Because he doesn't have kids, he doesn't have grandkids that he can brag about all the time. Uh, He doesn't have a job or at least a dependable job. He does occasionally work. He doesn't have a house that he lives in. He just travels around. He's homeless, right? He doesn't have a car. He doesn't even have a dependable donkey, right? His donkey throws him to the ground just because of a bright light, right? So he doesn't have a lot of the things going on that we might say that most Highlanders have going on for them. But maybe more importantly is that Saul is a bad guy. He has lived a really hard life when it comes to Acts 9. I don't know that he broke as many bones as evil, although he was shipwrecked and arrested and beaten, stoned. But he lived a hard life. So would he fit in here? I mean, occasionally we'll have a new member who comes to Highland and they'll tell Chris or I that they want to meet with the elders because they just want to share what's going on in their life. They want to kind of get it all out on the table so that everybody knows, you know, maybe they've had marital failure or they've struggled with addiction or they've got these other issues in their life and they want to be really transparent. They want, they want to come and be transparent. Paul does the same thing in 1 Timothy and listen to what he says about himself. He says, even though I was once a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief, right? He, he, he blasphemes, he's a persecutor, he's a violent guy, he's also ignorant and unbelieving. Like, how's that for a two-sentence resume? Not great. You know, we've had people who've made bad choices who've come here, but Saul helped kill Christians. Like that's the first time we meet him is when he's standing alongside while Stephen is stoned to death. That's the first time we meet him. So if he didn't actually pull the trigger, he is at least accessory to murder. I was trying to make sense of this and this comes to mind. Unfortunately, it's not that hard to imagine. It is not that hard to imagine today in this era that a gunman would enter a church and shoot Christians. Because even the last few years, that's played out several times in Charleston, near Nashville, South Texas. It's it's painful that it's not that hard to imagine that. But it's also worth stopping and recognizing that that fear, the fear that that kind of inspires deep down in your gut, was the same fear the early church lived with every time they got together. Okay, that somebody might come, round them up, and kill them for worshiping Jesus. And persecution wasn't consistent in every place all the time. But if you imagine that, kind of living with that fear every time you come together as a church, okay, like they did, what you need to recognize is that the face of the person they saw in those nightmares was Saul's. Saul was the person they thought might be outside 
every time they heard footsteps outside the little homes they were meeting in. Saul is the guy. Okay, so that's why when God tells Ananias to go and find Saul, who's expecting him, he says this, Lord, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm that he's done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And this is the same reason that when Saul shows up to the church in Jerusalem, it says that all were afraid of him, not believing. He really was a disciple. So what do you think? Do you think Saul would have fit in here? I mean, think about it. I think it's worth thinking about that as we wonder together about the people that God might bring our way as a church. Think about it. what is it about a person that might walk through these doors right behind us that we would be drawn to or that we would resist? Probably if you're like me, that would happen at a subconscious level instantly. As soon as you meet a person, you're assessing whether they are like you, whether you have something to connect with them about, or whether they have some differences with you that are off-putting and you're just going to kind of stay away. What might those things be if somebody's drawn to us? And it's the subconscious there that gets us into trouble because if you look back at this story, apparently God is doing something in Saul before the Damascus Road experience. And this is something we don't talk enough about. But when Saul retells the Damascus Road story, he tells it later on in Acts 26, he says that he hears what we have in Acts 9, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? But apparently Saul heard more than that. Apparently he also heard Jesus say, Saul, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. So it's that kicking against the goads line that should get your attention. I'm not a farmer, I'll admit that, but a goad is a really simple thing and I think I'm qualified to tell you about it. Basically a goad is a sharp stick, a sharp stick that a farmer puts behind the back leg of an ox that's pulling his plowing equipment, right? And as, as that ox resists doing what the farmer wants the ox to do, it starts to kick as he's pulling on the reins. And when he kicks, what does he kick? The goad. And it hurts. Nobody wants to get stabbed with a sharp stick. So that the more the ox resists, the more the goad punishes him, the more painful it is. And what Saul says is Jesus apparently was working on him before Damascus Road. Apparently Jesus was doing things in Saul's heart that were causing him pain when he resisted. And you might wonder, we don't, we don't know what those are, but you might wonder what those were. We know that Saul studied under the brightest Jewish teachers. And it makes you wonder if like maybe while he was studying under those Jewish teachers, these questions about Jesus rose in his heart. But he was so ashamed of those questions because of the context that he's in, that he's afraid to ask them out loud. And so what he decides is he's just going to punish everyone else who's asking those same questions about Jesus. And that somehow that'll make his questions not hurt so bad. You know, you wonder if maybe while he's standing there, while Stephen's being stoned, he's having these doubts about the Jesus he is persecuting in the form of Stephen. And instead of reckoning with those doubts, he just decides if he can crush the church of this guy, Jesus, then maybe those doubts will be crushed along with them, right? We don't know. We don't know. But apparently, before Damascus Road, Jesus is doing something in Saul of Tarsus. And Saul's been kicking against the goads. 
And so what we see at Damascus Road isn't some kind of event that happens out of nowhere like it appears, that it's just the climax of this ongoing struggle that Jesus and Saul are having. And it's this moment in which Saul finally just gives up and decides to surrender to Jesus. And that makes me wonder about the people who might come here. And I think it maybe should make you wonder about them too. Because as you, you think about who those people might be and what maybe they've done, what maybe they're still doing, what sins they've got in their life, what addictions they're dealing with, what things they say or don't say. It's really possible while you think about that, you may miss this really more important question, which is what is God already doing in those people? Because let me tell you, they would not come here unless God was doing something, right? And so what happens with Saul on the road to Damascus is that he finally can no longer resist. And where do you go when you can't resist Jesus anymore? You go to church, right? There's nowhere else in this world to go when you can't resist Jesus anymore. You go to church. That's where you go. So if Saul came here, would he fit in? Uh, Ananias and Barnabas who seem to be kind of periphery characters in this story that really is about Saul who became Paul. For them, that question of whether or not this guy Saul would fit in here is not rhetorical. I get we're 2,000 years removed, so he's probably not going to come, okay? But for them, it's not a rhetorical question. It's a practical question. Is this guy going to fit in to the Lord's church? This brand new church that's in its infancy, that is teetering on the edge of existence, isn't worth bringing in this blasphemer who's violent and persecutes us. This sinful guy who's ignorant, is it worth bringing him in? And by that do I mean, can we have him over to a small group in our house? Are we going to take him a meal if he, has, if he gets sick, right? Uh, are we going to, you know, let him go on a mission trip with us? I mean, is it worth it? Will he fit in? Okay, and here's the truth, and this is what I want you to hear. If Ananias and Barnabas had not answered that question with a yes, the church would have said no. We see that later on in Acts because the church in Jerusalem is terrified of him, and they wouldn't have accepted him unless Barnabas vouches for him. And think about how different the world would be if the church had said no to Saul of Tarsus. And we wouldn't have the, most of the New Testament. The church wouldn't have spread like it did. It's possible you and I wouldn't be Christians. But those guys said, yes, he'll fit here. So what did it take for them to say that? Well, here's what I think. Um, Chris and I were really lucky to be a part of this prayer program a couple of years ago. We spent a year in prayer with a, a guy here in town who knows a lot about prayer. And he led us through what's called the Ignatian Exercises. A guy named Ignatius knew so much about prayer that he wrote the book on it. And the book is divided into weeks. So you're supposed to spend different weeks praying about different things. And the truth is that some of those weeks may last much longer, like a year. The second and third and fourth weeks are about praying over the life of Jesus. It's really powerful. Everybody wants to, to think about Jesus and what Jesus has to say to their lives. But the first week, 
your, your job in the first week is to pray about your sinfulness and the terror of hell. It's a really fun week. Nobody wants to think about those things, myself included. What you're supposed to pray about in the first week is that God will show you the depth of your sinfulness and the terror of hell. In other words, pride is a big problem. Pride is a big problem. And you do realize that this question we've been asking over and over again about evil can evil and about Paul or Saul at the time, this question, would he have fit in here? You only ask that kind of question if you've got some pride inside. Okay. You only ask that kind of question, whether or not I can have a relationship with this person, whether this person will fit in here, if you think to some degree you're a little bit better. Right? Or else everybody would just fit in. If you didn't think somewhere down in there, I'm a little bit better. Which is to say, pride is the problem, and the only way to hold on to your pride is to stay really far away from your sin, to keep it at arm's length. C.S. Lewis called pride the great sin, the great sin. And C.S. Lewis had a lot to be proud of. He wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, and they're still doing really well, you know? But he said this about pride. He said, as long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that's above you. And that's really the linchpin of the argument I'm trying to make today. If Ananias or Barnabas, these two guys on the edge of this story, if those two guys had held on to any vestiges of pride. You know, if they weren't convinced that they were just like Saul of Tarsus, who called himself the chief of sinners, then they never would have welcomed him. And they never would have thought he could fit into. They just wouldn't have. I'm reminded of that old song, Amazing Grace. The story of that song is really great. You've heard it written by a man who helped to fight Slavery, But there's that really haunting line in the song, the amazing grace that saved a what? A wretch like me. We don't use that word wretch a lot. But I think about Ananias and Barnabas, and they must have known what kind of wretches they were. Or else they would have looked down on Saul, and they would have had every reason to look down on Saul. Remember, accessory to murder. But the greatest crime of all would have been as they looked down on Saul, they would have missed something going on above them, something that God was doing in Saul, the whole goats thing. And if they had missed the chance to see God, I mean, what kind of crime could be worse than that? And so I think there's two morals to this story, and I'll, I'll end with these two morals. The first is for guests who are here this morning. I'm really thankful that you're here. I'm thankful that you're getting to overhear us talk about you. <laughs> Here's what I want you to hear. No matter what it looks like, no matter what we look like, we don't have it all together. And so you do fit in. You do fit in if you feel that way. And the other lesson is for members, and it's going to sound familiar. No matter what it looks like, no matter how we look, we don't have it all together. And we can do a good job of masking that. You know, we, we have donkeys that don't buck us off and we've got cars that will get us here and home and good dependable jobs and grandkids. Let me tell you about my grandkids, right? 
We can do a good job of masking it. But the truth is, we are wretches, one and all. Don't take that personally. Okay, maybe you should take that personally, because we are. We are all deep in sin. And so I'm thankful that the mold we share is the mold that God is making us into. Like Paul says, we were slaves to sin and now we are slaves to righteousness here. But that is the essence of the story, the gospel that brings us together, that even though we are all crummy, that God is doing something magnificent in us. And as case in point, I want to, I want to point out one thing, maybe as a lesson to leave you with. And that is that as Ananias goes to Saul, this man he had to be afraid of, that the first word out of his mouth to Saul, do you remember? Brother, brother. I mean, think of all the things he could have said to Saul. Saul, I want to know everything you've done before you come here. <laughs> all right, let's get it all out on the table, Saul. Okay, Saul, I, I want you to be aware of these things, Saul. You know, he says, brother. The first words that Saul hears out of the mouth of a Christian after Jesus completes this transformative project, and well, doesn't complete it, but at least makes a marked turn in that project in Saul's life. The first words he hears out of the mouth of a Christian are the words of adoption. Brother, you belong here. You belong here. I don't, I don't know that Saul's going to come by here next Sunday. I don't know the evil Knievel is going to come by here, right? I don't, I don't expect that. What I do know is that somebody like him and like those two will come. Which is to say somebody like you and me will come. That they're here this morning. You know, Brescian shared we had 12 guest cards filled out last week. We actually had 27 first-time guests represented on those 12 cards. 27 first-time guests who are here. You don't come to church unless Jesus is doing something in your heart. And so my prayer is that when somebody walks through these doors who has been wrestling with Jesus for some time and has finally decided to surrender, that the first words they will hear from you are, brother, sister, as you're sitting by them this morning and, and they're looking nervous because they don't know anybody around them and they're thinking about skipping Bible class and just going to Starbucks down the street, I hope that you will look at them and say, brother, that coffee is way overpriced. <laughs> now, I hope that you'll say, brother or sister, I am just like you and I found a home here and I think you can too. Will you do that? Let's stand and sing this morning. If you'd like to receive Jesus in baptism, I'd love to be, receive you. I'll be down here in front. We've also got shepherds in the back who'd love to pray with you. Will you sing with me? Everyone needs compassion, love that's never failing.